ooey intellectual one today for you guys. I had just uh, sat down with David Allison. You probably have never heard that name before, um, but it's all good. He's a four-time author, uh, a consultant for many uh, multinational companies. Uh, he is someone who is disrupting an industry, uh, an industry that's, or many industries that are obsessed with demographics, and he's changing that and moving it into value graphics. What do we care about versus how old we are? Uh, his recent, most recent book, We Are All the Same Age Now, is a uh, a uh, very worthwhile read. Um, he's very interested in social impact, moving the world on a bigger scale. How do we move the world? How do we take new data sets and what we now know and apply them to a bigger picture and actually do some good in the world, not just sell products? Uh, that perspective and that lens uh, led to you know really good conversations about things completely unrelated to that. Uh, very youthful person, if I may say that, uh, high energy, um, very open-minded, uh, extremely intelligent. And, uh, I really appreciated, you know, him coming and, and, and talking and, and having this conversation with me. He was, you know, I was hands down the stupidest person that he talked to today, uh, just running me through his schedule. He had some, you know, serious meetings and I'm just kind of over here like, yeah, have a conversation about your book. Um, so if you guys are really into marketing, um, and you want to understand populations, you want to understand how to move, how to market, uh, and how to operate as a human or how companies are making you operate, um, you'll really enjoy this one. So, David Allison, check it out. Dave, welcome to The Compound. Thanks for having me over. It's good to be here. <laughs> nice. That was good. Nice and rehearsed. I like it. <laughs> said that a couple of times. Um, Dave, uh, you're, you're here because you're an interesting person. You're here because you bring a lot to the table. Um, and you're here because I think you're the perfect person to make data cool i think you're the perfect person to break down some stereotypes some demographics some psychographics and take this whole concept of marketing which is maybe being taught wrong and bring it to the 21st century i hope so i'm on a mission to try and see if i can't just make that happen what's your what's your because uh, you run a consulting company, yeah. right? What's your mission, mission statement? Do you have a mission statement? I have a mission statement. No, you know, mission, vision, vision, and values. It's a, it's a, those are weird constructs. Yes, they are. Um, we spent a lot of time in the 1980s all running around getting worried about all that stuff, but uh, uh -huh. uh, it was inevitably ended up being a bunch of vice presidents in a boardroom with donuts who would decide what the mission, vision, and values were for a company, and then it would get written up on a wall behind the receptionist at yeah. the front desk and then nobody would know what it meant and it was there to make the CEO happy and you yeah. know, it was kind of a, a weird a weird deal. Uh, so what's yours? What are you, what's your, the purpose of your consulting company, your concepts, you as a person? Well, I'll tell you what the big idea is here. The end game. Uh, the end game is to be Robin Hood. Oh. Uh, I want to... Um, you got knocks at your door I here. I got knocks on my door. Don't worry about that. Uh, the end game is to be Robin Hood. I want to take, I want to use the data that we've built. I want to take this tool we've created that can increase the ROI for a company as much as eight times based on just using values as a way to understand an audience instead of using demographic stereotypes as a way to use an audience. Right. Companies will pay me for this. They have been. We've been at this for four years now. It's going very well. Mm -hmm. um, but the real reason for this thing to exist is because it can impact the world. Mm -hmm. 
I, I hate, I don't know a better way of saying this. It's such a cliched phrase right now, but I, this, we can change the world with this. Yeah. Uh, and I, everybody thinks they're going to change the world. I'm sure I ate a bag of taco chips yesterday that said, we can change the world on the outside of the bag of taco chips, yeah. right? But this data, what it does is it predicts uh, how to influence behavior. Mm. So we can predict behavior, we can influence people's behavior. There isn't a problem in the world right now that couldn't be solved or at least impacted in a positive way. Mm by understanding what an audience needs to hear in order to get them to think something different or behave differently. Mm. Single-use plastics. Mm. We got to change our behavior around single-use plastics. Mm. If we just knew what the exact messages were, what the values were that we need to trigger to get people to start thinking about this in a different way, mm -hmm. we could make a dent in that world by just a little bit. Disease okay. prevention, uh, refugee crises, wars, mm. politics. There isn't anything going on right now, that any of the problems in the world that wouldn't be fixed just a little bit by helping us all understand each other a little bit better. Rather than just selling products. Rather than just selling products, or rather than using demographic stereotypes as a way to understand each other. So you keep it in that world of what's the mission here? What's the, what's the purpose of this? Mm -hmm. I'll give you a concrete example. Um, refugees. So what refugees around the world right now, millions of people are moving from one part of the world to another for whatever reason. I'm not here to judge. They're, they're leaving for, for good reasons, bad reasons, whatever it is. They're showing up on borders of other places and they're being met with fear and hostility and anger and violence because they don't understand each other. And there's organizations that have boots on the ground there. There's the United Nations and the World Health Organization, Doctors Without Border and UNICEF and all these groups. If this data could get into their hands and they could understand what it is these two sides and these conflict situations have in common mm. and just start the conversations based on the things that they both care about, the things that they share, it's not going to make those problems go away, but we can turn the volume down a few notches. Mm -hmm. We can just make it a little more civil, a little quieter, a little bit nicer, a little bit a little bit easier to get to some kind of resolution that's going to work for everybody mm -hmm. instead of this pent-up anger that's all about you're different than me, you're a demographic group that I don't like, uh, and therefore I'm going to react to this thing that's strange. We don't, we don't, we, we don't like things that we don't understand. Mm -hmm. We can help everybody understand each other just a little bit better. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting thing because we don't think of people that way. We think of people as women and men. Christian and Jewish. We think of black and white. That's that's how we think. But go to any go to any go to any concert. Go to any uh, Beatles concert or or any concert like that. Who are you going to see there? You see black people? Are you going to see white people? Are you going to see men? Are you going to see women? Absolutely, right? Yeah. Because there's a certain value system that goes there. You're going to see young and old. Like absolutely, right? Like who listens to Bob Marley? My mom. <laughs> Who else listens to Bob Marley? Me, you know, because we're all the same age now. Right. Um, Dave, this is your fourth book? Fourth book, yeah. The first one in wide release. The previous three were very sort of niche products spent for a very specific target audience. But right. This one, this works for everybody. There's stuff in here that anybody can use. And you know what? This is um, a super easy book to, to read super easy lots of small words like you just like yeah little yeah. little small words like <laughs> cute little analogies you know like i don't fit into this value graphic but if i was you know this is what i'd like to see in a bank you know well, you know what that's about the best compliment you can give um i set out with all of the books i've written i i, I don't believe that business books need to be boring yeah uh that there's no reason if you've got an idea and it's worth spreading that you should be able to just tell a good story and get people excited about it and, and they should it. be able to play it apply it to their lives yeah. so many people write business books and it's like they're trying to 
show how smart they are and how many big giant words they can use and how many you know convoluted sentences they can construct and just tell a nice simple little story yeah. and tell everybody what your point is that's yeah. all we really need to and do, move so. on yeah and move on exactly. and that's exactly what i think you've achieved in here i like it um for, for a lot of reasons but mainly because it's simple it's a really complex idea like a lot of times i'm reading this book and in our previous conversations i'm like this guy's dumbing this down so much <laughs> that i'm like I appreciate it, but I'm like, okay, like I'm like I'm itching and I'm clawing. I'm like, okay, like hey, where do the data sets come through? And like, uh, you know, like what were the specific questions? And in here, you're like, well, there's like you know, 340 questions we asked, and then I'm like, I want to know what those 340 questions were, right? right, right <laughs> you know, right? right, right. And, but that's 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 me or whatever. So what? So I guess what I'm asking here is, um, what led you to these books? And because you're you're many things. You're a consultant. Uh, you're a husband. You are an author. What led you here today writing books about demolishing demographics and psychographics? Well, you know, there's never a simple answer to a question like that. There were so many different factors that impacted my life and brought me to this point. Um, I spent most of my life working in the marketing and advertising world in some form or another for mm. other people and then had my own company for a long time. And that's a demographic-heavy world. Yes. Uh, just wrote a little story for a magazine the other day that was a great illustration. So the company I just uh, I built and sold about three years ago um, specialized in the real estate development world. And what would happen in that world is you'd sit down with the real estate developer and they would tell you uh, what the demographic was going to be for the building that they were working on at the moment. Right. And then as the marketing guy, your job is to go away, work with your team and come back and say, based on the demographics that you've given me for the people who are coming to this building, here's what we think we should call it. And here's mm -hmm. the campaign and here's the ads and here's how it's all going to come together. The colors, yeah. And somebody in the room could just say, eh, I don't like it. What else you got? Yeah. Uh, and it all becomes this battle of opinion. Right. And whoever has the checkbook wins those battles of opinion, Ooh, right? Yeah. It's so subjective. It's so incredibly subjective. So that was one of the influences for sure that led me to trying to see if we couldn't figure out a way to remove that subjectivity. Mm -hmm. What if you could stand, regardless of what kind of creative output you have, if you're an architect, an interior designer, a marketing guy, a musician, um, anybody who's dealing with creative IP, if you could stand up and say, listen, I've made these creative decisions because I know we're doing this for these people and this is what they actually will respond to. Mm. So if you could put some data behind that and still be the creative guy who figures out how to do it in a really interesting and cool way, but base it on hundreds of thousands of surveys and responses to a very scientifically valid uh, data set, right. now it's pretty hard for that guy in the boardroom to go, eh, mm. I don't know if I like it yeah. uh, because it's data. Right? Yeah, it's not taking away from our ability to be creative. It enhances our ability to be creative. Mm. So that was one part of what really got me excited. When we started to go down this road and see what was happening, I have to be honest, uh, this is not what I expected to be doing. You don't, it doesn't seem like it. No. Yeah. Uh, it's sort of like, um, you know, the, the famous story about the invention of 3M sticky notes and microwave ovens and Viagra. And there's all these products that that was not where they thought they were going. And then yeah. they found this thing. Yeah. And so that's what we'll became that thing, right? Yeah. I did not think I was writing this book. I thought I was writing some other book. And we were doing a little bit of research. And the data started coming back. And it was very specific to a particular industry. And it was a very small set of um, surveys. And we went, wow, if this is true here, why wouldn't it be true for everything? Mm -hmm. And so we went back out and started getting more and more data and more and more data. And we're like, you know what? We've just proven yeah. what we all kind of know. Yeah. 
which is that demographics are bullshit and that we don't act our age. Nobody really cares what gender we are anymore. You don't have to accomplish certain things by certain points in your life. If you want to get married at age 70, you can. That wasn't true so long ago. Uh, All those rules have changed, and yet we still believe that the world needs to run based on some set of demographic principles. So it feels quite liberating to have... um, so there's, I, I mean, that's a very long-winded answer to your question, but I think there's all sorts of different factors in my life that have led me to this point. Frustration with my career, um, a, a, a realization that demographics, the, the foundation of my career was uh, was ridiculous. Yeah. Um, trying to write a book so I could actually support myself and be a consultant and build a little business. You put all these things together and all these clues, the universe starts handing you and you suddenly you're just like, wow, this is a thing. And then what happens? The longest answer ever to one single question. I've heard longer. Don't uh, worry. <laughs> oh, don't. I just. I'm just getting started. Um, the uh, then what happens is it starts to morph on you. Yeah. So you think, okay, I found this thing. This is great. This is what I'm going to do. Uh, and then as you work with it, and you work with it, and you mold it, and it becomes something else. And you write the book, and you start giving speeches and doing lectures and all these things, and people start telling you stuff and. You're like, wow, I hadn't really thought about it that way before. And that's cool. I didn't know it could do that. And this happens and that happens. Organically, it sort of starts to take on a life of its own. Uh-huh. And then at some point, you realize it's now something other than what you thought it was. Uh-huh. Uh, and I fully expect by the time I'm done, uh, it's going to become something else yet that I can't even particularly envision at the moment right, right. now. Right. Um, it just keeps changing. And just being cool with that has been a big lesson. Just being cool with the fact that I thought I had this thing. I thought I had it defined. I knew what it was. It was in a box. I could understand it. Every day I wake up and it's like, what part of this am I going to not understand today? What's right. going to be new today? What, yeah. What's going to be, what's going to get added to this today? Yeah. It's, it's been a really cool few years. It's like, see, here's the thing. Data is data. Like it's, it's numbers are, are hard. Numbers are hard. And you have taken these numbers in such vast data sets in that you said it beautifully in here. It's like a bubble bath, mm. right? It's like a bubble bath where these these numbers compile to such a level and you can see them in 3D in a sense when you're talking about people and how complex our dimensions are. Like you can take that and mold that and find different perspectives constantly, right? Oh, I didn't see what was behind there or I didn't see it from this angle. Um, and so the way you've morphed data into this living thing in mm. a sense. Yeah, right? it's, and it's endless. I mean, let's talk about the bubble bath for a moment because it is a good analogy. Please, yeah, please, break that down because I did a terrible job. I didn't even break it down. <laughs> <laughs> well, so at the moment in North America alone, we have 100,000 surveys that we've conducted. Uh, and in the rest of the world, at this moment, the day we're doing this, we have 59 countries where we have a statistically accurate representative sample of the population. So we what got is this? Fi- okay, what's that number? Uh, the number to be statistically representative depends on the population of the country you're talking about, right? So right. at the moment, right. we've got about 250,000 surveys in total, 100,000 of which are in, are in uh, Canada and the United States. By the end of this year, we're probably going to be by the end of this year, we will have the entire world done. I'm guessing at what the number of surveys will end up being, but it's going to be around the 400, 500,000 <coughs> mark, because that's how many we're going to have to have to be statistically accurate right. for everywhere in the world. Right. And what we've asked with all these surveys is a series of questions about 40 core human values. 
So these 40 core values are things like trust, uh, love, sex, money, relationship, finances, um, you know, all these different things that are personal core human values. They're set out in a list by the World Values Index. Social scientists around the world have bought into this list. This is the list of the 40 core human values, Got right? It. So we've tested these 40 core human values, figured out with these, at the moment, 250,000 people around the world, how do they feel about these 40 different things? But then in order to get a really good sense of how they feel about those things, we've asked contextualizing questions about what they want, need, and expect about those 40 things. So you might say to me that family is the most important thing in your life, but what you want and need and expect for your family helps me understand how you think about family better than if you had just told me that family is important, right? right. So altogether, there's 380 questions. 250,000 surveys, and if you think about each one as a bubble in the bubble bath, this is where the bubble bath comes from, because I'm not the smartest guy in the world. I need these little stories in order to help me understand what I got my hands on here, right? <laughs> so this bubble bath, you're sitting in the bubble bath and looking out at these bubbles, then your toes are way down there at the other end of the, of the tub, uh, and there's all these peaks and valleys of bubbles. There's mountains and valleys, and some of those mountains are super, super tall and pointy, and they have narrow bases, and other have wide bases and they're far apart from each other and there's places where there's no bubbles at all. And sometimes a bubble is floating. And sometimes a bubble is floating. Those are, yeah, those are the outlier weird little bubbles. So that is basically what this data set looks like. In the book, we talk about the 10 different archetypes. Now the archetypes are nothing more than picking the 10 highest bubble peaks. The places where the most data seems to come to coalesce together around some kind of point. There's a point there that for some reason or another is like a magnet. Mm -hmm. And all these data pieces are clumping around those particular things. Those 10 archetypes, we've given them names like the Environmental Assembly and the Loyalist Lodge and all are these, these different Are these your names, names, by the way? Yeah, we made up these Hell names. Yeah. Because each one of them is, is sort of indicating what the point is around which the data seems to be circulating. Yeah. Those are the 10 most powerful groups of um, aligned values that we can use to represent the populations that we've studied. So here's what this is about. Instead of saying that an audience of people are 18 to 24 and they're male and they make $50,000 a year and they're uh, in a white collar job and they have a bachelor's degree, yeah. that kind of data, that kind of information is only going to give us the ability to tell how similar people are within that group that you've just described. We, we get to about um, uh, 10, 11, 12, 13% similarity rating, depending right. on what kind of combination of those demographic labels we're Meaning talking about. Meaning they'll agree? They'll agree with each other on all 380 of those things, only about 10, 12, 11, 13, like so it's low teens, right? right? Sure. If we use values as a way to describe a group of people, mm -hmm. we get up in the 80s, the 90s. So 89% similarity around those 380 different things. That's what those peaks are. Those peaks are where we are most similar. Right. Those groups are the most similar groups in the population. Right. So at its simplest, this is a way for us to replace things like boomers, millennials, Generation X, we can instead start talking about the Loyalist Lodge, the Savers Society. The, so good. These, the Anti-Materialistic Guild, <laughs> the Adventure Club. What else you got here? The House of Creativity, the Environmental Assembly. These are so good. My favorite one is the, uh, the, the one about debt. The, um, what do we got here? It was the last one. The, the Royal Order of the Overdrawn. The Royal Order of the Overdrawn. <laughs> My research guys uh, wanted to just call that the debtors. And I no. was like, 
Well, I mean, the characteristic of that particular group is that regardless of whether you make a million dollars a year or you make $10,000 a year, this group of people is always $1 shy. Of course. So they make all their decisions. That's their primary factor that they're using when they make decisions about anything. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, they're the debtors, but yeah. I thought they needed a little dignity. So we just decided, I, I decided, I was gonna call them the Royal Order of the Overdrawn because Brilliant. nobody is ever gonna wanna Brilliant. be a debtor. But I'll, I'll fess up to being the Royal Order of the Overdrawn from time to time. That's fine, that, yeah. no problem. I'll, I'll yeah. have a little bit of royal blood in me. So, so yeah. to contextualize what you're saying a little bit versus for the, and this is why I find this industry interesting, interesting, and this is maybe a little bit of a selfish conversation in a sense, like we have, so for instance, um, a bank puts out a billboard. Uh, a bank puts out a billboard and they have identified their demographic and they say they're going for boomers because that's where the money is uh, right now. It's it's solely there. So with that, they have identified what this um, target demographic does, what they like, et cetera, et cetera. That, and they put out that billboard that they think will appeal to them. Based off of them finding the data from that age, what's a boomer age? Uh, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm the littlest boomer and I'm 55. So it's 55 and up. Sure. 55 and up basically. So all of, if a hundred boomers walked by that billboard, 11 of them, uh, boomers are 15%, 15% of them would agree on 13, sorry, 13%, 13%. I got to get my stats right here. 13%. Your stats guy. Let's go. Um, 13% of those people would agree uh, with that message. With that message. Yeah. Versus if we would have not organized people in that way, rather organized people based on their values, based on these surveys, based on their agreeability on these certain characteristics, we would have a 80... 89% perhaps. 89%. 76, 89, that seems to be the range. Somewhere in there, 76% to 89% agreement on those variables, on those values, on those values, wants, needs, and expectations if we use value graphics. Now, you have to remember, demographics are still important. Right. So let's, I was just, I used to do a lot of work in the real estate industry, so it's an easy sure. um, uh, little story for me to tell. 18-year-olds who make $25,000 a year are not going to buy $3 million penthouses. Why not? We know this for a fact, right? Uh, I'm so, working on it. <laughs> you're 22, man. Okay. You should have one by Jesus now. Like, Christ. what's your problem? Slacker. Four years? Slacker. Oh, my God. Uh, so, so, we still need to know a demographic. Right. But here's what we do. We take that demographic, and then we make up stuff about them. And we say, uh, okay, so people who are going to buy $3 million penthouses, they're going to be at least 60 years old. They're going to be married. They're empty nesters. They've lived in the suburbs. They're selling their single-family home. Their kids have flown the coop. Ooh, just are, rattle those off. They're they're <laughs> they're status conscious. They want a concierge. They want like gold plated everything. They want like uh, handles in the bathroom sink that look like swans. They want like all this stuff we can make up about that group because who's going to argue? Yeah. Uh, you can't prove that I'm wrong. Yeah. Uh, so I'm just going to go and do all that stuff. Instead, what we need to do is say, okay, for this defined demographic, we still need to use demographics to define the audience. For that defined demographic, for this product or service or brand, what are their values? Uh -huh. So that we can make decisions about the creative aspects of that building or product or service or brand, whatever we're talking about, based on something real, other than just stereotypes that flew out of my head because I felt that gold swan faucets were probably pretty cool for that group, right? <laughs> um, I want to know that that group of people I'm making this condo for are, um, let's say, driven by loyalty, uh, family, and um, let's say um, authority, 
So loyalty, family, and authority. Uh, that means that we should be making decisions that are going to reinforce those three values for them about every aspect of the building. Right. Family, they're going to need to have a couple of extra suites in that building so that when their family comes to stay, there's somewhere for them to go. Right. They're going to have grown children who've got children of their own. They're not always going to want them staying in their suite with them. They've downsized. They've gone from 5,000 right. square feet to 1,500 square feet, right? right? I don't want my kids and their kids staying with me, but they've got a really great guest suite. There's a room attached to it for kids to go. There's a ballroom and the, you know, that wow. you can start to make these decisions because sure. you know for sure that family is one of their triggers. Right. Um, loyalty, is that one of the ones I pulled yeah, out absolutely. there? So loyalty. Um, there's a group of people who are driven by loyalty. They're going to want to be loyal to something. So we're going, you can't just run around being loyal. You have to be loyal to a thing, to a person, to a place. So we're going to try and engender a sense of loyalty to this building. You might be able to trigger their sense of loyalty around the city, for example. Okay. Let's say we're building this building here in Vancouver. Sure. These are people who've lived all their lives in Vancouver. Let's make this the Vancouver building. Let's make this building just trigger that sense of being loyal to my town. I'm never going to leave Vancouver. I love this town. I grew up in this town. This town's been good to me. Yeah. I'm going to be good to this town. Tell me stories about this building in a way that makes me feel like I'm being loyal yeah. and that I'm being rewarded for my loyalty. Uh, that's going to trigger. Um, ah. So you just use the, the values that a person has because what we value determines what we do. If you know the values of a group of, of people for anything, you can trigger those values and you can influence the way they're going to behave and predict the way they're going to behave around any given situation. Okay, can I dig a little bit further here? So say you have a group of loyalists and you're going to name it the Vancouver Club. Uh, uh, club? <laughs> uh, the Vancouver... Uh, Vancouver Tower. Yeah, the Vancouver Tower, yeah. sure. Past, like, because I'm pretty interested here, like, what past just naming it that, how do you seep in, how do you trigger loyalty on a deeper sense, like, within the building itself? Like, for family, is easy. You say, okay, well, listen, we'll get a guest suite and we'll have a ballroom. Yeah. Like, from loyalty, like, that's hard. Well, they're all hard, man, because there's, there's a surface level way to, to look at this stuff. Family is an easy one to talk about because you can be superficial about it really quickly. Right. Just, it doesn't mean you need to be a family building. It means that the people who are going to come and live in this building value their families and are going to make decisions based on whether this is good for their family or not. You could have no hint that this is about family whatsoever. And instead, it's all about, um, let's say, you buy your condo and a certain percentage of the mortgage that we've negotiated with you through this particular bank is going to go into an account for your grandkids. I see. Uh, so this is an incentive for you to come and think about our building versus someone else's oh. building that's not going to benefit your grandkids. We're going to do stuff here at this building um, that are that's about um, uh, helping families in this community uh, uh, reconnect with each other. And, and, and um, we're going to fix up that playground around the corner and we're going to donate to the local school. Yeah. And some of the programming we're going to do here in this building is specific to family charities that happen to be operating in the, in the community. Right. It doesn't mean your building has to suddenly have a ballroom and a playground. Sure. It just means that you know the people coming are going to be making decisions about whether or not it's triggering their family, their value around family. Mm. So the only way to use this stuff is to make sure you've got enough of different disciplines looking at it and helping you understand what it means. Right. Uh, you and I can sit here and riff all day about what does loyalty mean to an architect? Sure. I want an architect to tell me, how do you make 
architecture that makes me feel like I'm being loyal? Right. How do you make, how does an interior designer take the word loyalty? What would they do with that? Yeah. What does a user experience guy do with the word loyalty? What does a marketing guy, a, a copywriter guy, mm. a photographer? I mean, how do we take every aspect of this and use it with all those specialty skills and perspectives to translate that word into and manifest it into right. things that are actually part of part of what we're doing? Tangible, yeah. So you're this is the common theme I'm kind of seeing like in marketing 101 or, or humans 101 don't come to a human and say here's the game plan this is what we're going to do demographics oh you're a boomer this is how we'll market you you like gold swans here you go here's some gold swans you better like them it's more of listening before you talk it's more of a hey let's not go in here and tell the market what they want let's just listen to the market like regardless with no preconceived notions of anyone's supposed to like anything and just see what we come up with and whatever we can come up with, then we'll market to that. Yeah, except it's science. Except it's science. <laughs> yeah. So you're right. It's uh, compared to coming in with a preconceived notion, a stereotype about what this audience for anything is going to like. Let's talk about that bottle of water. Absolutely. So that bottle of water, we could sit down and we're designing a new kind of bottled water and we decide it's going to be a glass bottle and it's got a little bit more of an upscale look to it. And sure. So we've got an idea in our head, who's going to buy this? We define them based on demographics. We say these are people who make a little bit more money than the other bottled water companies are going to be targeting. Uh, so we better make it look a little fancier. We better do this. We better do that. We better blah, blah, blah. Instead, we're going to go out and use this data set, mm -hmm. and we're going to do uh, uh, an actual extrapolation from the data set so that we know precisely, scientifically, with a plus or minus 3.5% margin of error, a 95% level of confidence, who it is that's going to buy this bottle of water, what it is their values are, and then how we can, then our job is to figure out how to trigger those values. Right. It's not so much about just going out and listening. It's about actually drawing data out of this data set. So yeah. this data set's never existed before. We have, right. to, we have to change the way we think about the world. We have to stop thinking immediately about every assignment, about everything that we do. Let's, let me talk about it this way. Ever since you woke up this morning, everything you've seen, everything you're wearing right now, everything in this room right now, began its life in a boardroom somewhere with a group of people sitting around saying, who are we making this for? Let's define them demographically and then let's make some decisions. That's depressing. It's true though. Every single thing that you've seen and had any contact with today began its life as a demographic description in a boardroom somewhere. I feel so used. Instead, imagine if everything that you'd seen since you woke up this morning and everything that you're wearing and everything in this room began its life in a boardroom with a group of people sitting around saying, the people we're making this thing for, what do they care about? What if that was the first question? Yeah. And from there, we started making decisions about what we're gonna, how we're gonna design it, how we're gonna price it, how we're gonna market it, how we're gonna do whatever else it is we need to do around this particular thing. Mm -hmm. If the world was built, if everything in the world from this point forward could be built based on what we value, instead of outdated demographic stereotypes about what 21-year-olds like, uh, I think it'd be a much better world. Yeah, it'd be a much happier world. A much happier world, I think there'd be much less stuff in this world that people don't want. Mm -hmm. I think there'd be a lot less anxiety and divisiveness in this world. Yeah. I mean, you think about it from this perspective, demographics are an inherently divisive, dismissive, disruptive uh, uh, structure for us to think about the world. Mm -hmm. As soon as you bring up demographics, it forces you to think about us versus them, black versus white, rich right. versus poor, young versus old educated versus uneducated, married, it forces you to push people apart. Right. 
what value graphics does and thinking about things from a values-based perspective is we talk about what brings people together. We all like this stuff. So let's do stuff for people who all agree on things instead of trying to divide the world and push us apart and become Republicans and Democrats and become right versus left and north versus south and black versus white. Let's be people who care for the environment. Let's be people who care for adventure. Let's be people who are loyal. Let's Uh be let's use these data points from hundreds of thousands of surveys Uh to figure out what we should be doing next. I love it. First off, like you, we, we needed a, uh, an applause machine or some shit. I need to be a DJ <laughs> and just hit that or some shit. Um, beautiful, 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 beautiful. Now let's talk about data for a second. Okay. So on a data, on the data front, we're in an age of unprecedented data. Uh, my data is being sold and my data is being bought and it's being farmed for me in ways that I have no idea. Yeah. Um, from your perspective, you say you're getting this data, this data from surveys. Now, there are social media companies, Google Analytics companies. There are companies that literally know more about me than I do. Like, there's companies that can market to me better than my girlfriend could or, yeah. or better than, you know, my mom could. Yeah. Um, so when you go out and you do these surveys, like, wh- how do you know that that's statistically accurate? Meaning those, if I'm filling out the survey, I'm really being truthful and honest. Right. Like, what makes a data point valid? Okay. There's a lot of questions in there. Oh, so, so let's many. let's let's deal let's deal with the validity of the answers one first. So we never ask anybody a direct question. Uh, I would never ask you, what do you think about, how do you feel about your family? Because sure. everybody's going to say what they think they, what I want them to, what, they're, they're all going to say what, what they think I want to hear, yes. uh, which is my family's super important to me. Uh, at worst, someone might say, well, you know, I'm, I'm not really close with them, but I love them. They're my family, right? <coughs> So what we do instead is we use social media. We use it as a way to understand what people are super enthusiastic about. So the example I give in the book is, uh, let's say on your homepage for your Facebook page, it says um, that you like hockey. We know that you're all about hockey. So we'll use that as a way to send out, you'll get a little thing that pops up, looks like an ad, and it just says, hey, we're trying to ask some hockey fans how they feel about the game. Um, We're just trying to collect some information about hockey. Would you mind answering a couple of questions, helping us out? We have a way we word this so that it becomes very, very difficult for you as a hockey fan to not click on that. Nice. Right? So you've clicked through now, and we start asking you some questions. And they might go like this. Uh, So do you have a favorite team? Of course I do. Uh, and if your team is knocked out of the league after out of the out of the season after the the second game, uh, would you change and start cheering for another team? No, of course not. I'm a one team man. Uh, do you watch Such games? A funny world we live in. Anyways, yeah. Do you watch games at home? I do. Do you watch them all? Of course I do. do your, does your family watch games with you? Not really. No, actually, no. Very rarely. Uh, do you go to games live? I do. Do you bring your kids with you? No. Do you bring your wife with you? No. Do you bring friends? Sometimes my friends will meet me there when they do. Do you drink? We do. Do you drink too much? Uh, yeah, most of the time we do. Do you ever travel to a game or when you're away for business, would you go to a game? Would you take a client to a game? Do you own a jersey? Do you own two jerseys? Do you have Jesus a water bottle? Christ. So you're having a great time answering all these questions. Right. about hockey, right? right? But what you're really telling me about is loyalty, family, friendships, relationships, wow. all of these things. Is it, We can take your answers to that stuff and we put those in the appropriate buckets wow. and we know that it's you who have given those answers to us. Now, we don't know your name, but we know you're 22. We know you're a male. We know you live in Vancouver. Right. What's 
remarkable about this data set is that we've managed to keep it as a random stratified statistically representative sample of the population, which is he basically said, a big fancy again? word. Yeah, yeah, I know. It took me a long time to not trip over that. It's a random stratified okay. statistically representative sample of the population. Okay. What it means is it's okay. an exact miniaturized version of the real world. Okay. So proportionately, we have the same number of 18-year-olds, 70-year-olds, men, women, black, white, Mexican, Chinese, north, south, east, west, urban, rural. However you can divide up the real world, we have that per same percentage in the 100,000 surveys, let's just say, for North, north America. We'll just talk sure. about those. Yeah. But this is what we're doing around the world. So because it's a random stratified statistically representative sample, it's incredibly accurate. Whatever we pull out of there is incredibly accurate. Now, right. the fact that we know you're a 22-year-old white guy who lives in Vancouver uh, and answers these questions about hockey, and this is your answer about loyalty, this is your answer about family, this is your answer about friends, we can keep those things in the right buckets in this giant data set. And as soon as we have enough 22-year-old white guys from Vancouver in our data set, we stop asking 22-year-old white guys from Vancouver to complete a survey. Right. We make sure that we what we're short on is 40-year-old woman from Dubuque. Yeah. So we make sure we get a few more of those and fill up that bucket and find out how they feel about loyalty and sure. about whatever, whatever, whatever. What keeps us from being um, evil uh, is we can't track back. Right. So I can't turn around and use the data that I've collected from you to market to you, right. except indirectly. I mean, yeah. if, if one of my clients hires me and says, what do 22-year-old what do white guys uh, think about this bottle of water? Yeah. I could go into the data set and say, 22-year-old white guys, this is what they think about your bottle of water. They're really motivated by loyalty, not so much by family, yeah. uh, and they're really big on their friends. So find a way to talk to them about those things around your bottled water, and you're going to have them. Wow. Okay. So scary. It's super scary. Um, within that... How does that relate back to what social media is doing in terms of like, are you ever, is there going to be a point w where you will change your methods from targeted ads and specific surveys and will it transfer over to buying data sets or utilizing the mass data that, you know, these social or, or no, 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 because those won't be arranged in the same way. So I have some, so they won't be statistically accurate. They won't be. So. Okay, we're getting into some really interesting places here. I like it. Um, the weeds. There's, there's, there's a very large company uh, who I won't name because it's sure. bad to say mean things about your competitors, but yes. there's a very large company out there who charges a very huge amount of money to come in and tell organizations what they know about their customers. Mm. Uh, they cobble together their data from census reports, from tax information, from yearbooks, from stuff they can get online, from all kinds of different places, mash it all together. My favorite one is they use postal codes and they say that, you know, <laughs> because you live in a postal code, you're a certain kind of person. Like, what? Nice. Where's it come from? Yeah. Uh, but that's one of their beliefs. So the postal, post office would so like ridiculous. us to believe this too. You know those like V9R people? Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Can you believe them? Yeah. They're so big on friends and not so big on authority but yeah. their loyalty uh, traits are the massive, 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 massive. All yeah. dogs. All dogs. Uh, so they have, I call it magpie data. So none of this data was designed to do what they're trying to make it do. Right. It's, it's all designed to do other stuff. They're mashing it together, crunching it up, throwing some math in there, stirring up the pot, and then starting to pull out profiles. Right. Every single survey, every single data point we've done was designed to do this. This is the only reason this stuff exists. Right. So it's pure. It's right. absolutely clean. It's like clean eating versus dirty eating, right? <laughs> uh, you, both meals are probably fine yeah. and at first glance seem pretty good. Right. I'd rather have the clean meal. 
I understand. Yeah. I like it a lot. Um, so how do I take this information now? So for instance, let's say I'm, uh, I'm, a, I'm a business owner and I have a business that's um, marketed around uh, coffee, uh, for instance. And we say, okay, listen, I know I understand who buys my coffee. I, I look at, at the lineups. I say, oh, there's, a, there's a lot of women. They're young. Uh, they're busy. They're on the phone a lot. They're texting all the time. Uh, okay, that's my target demo. So it's going to be... Um, 20 to 30 year old women uh, who have you know a well-paying job because they can afford my coffee now these are all statistics and demographics now a smart business owner will say okay what does this person care about and they'll start to naturally do that they'll start to naturally try to figure out what their values are and and how they can tap into that right now that's just kind of like this intuitive woo sense like it's just like I don't I can't really put my finger on it but it's I know that it's this kind of person and if I see that type of person I can identify that type of person yeah. but I can't mass market to that because I can't tangibly say right what my 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 value graphic is right. or even what that person's thinking so how do I as a business owner because we have a lot of business owners listening to this podcast look at that uh, data set. And when I say data set, I mean a lineup at their coffee shop. Sure. And actually assess that in a way where they can change their branding, their marketing to have higher conversion rates, take that from an 11% and get it to an 80%. Yeah. Have I got a story for you? Oh, oh boy. Uh, so uh, I believe so strongly that uh, a world based on values is a better world that I actually have given in, in my book. So for the cost of the book, which you know, I don't know how much you know about writing books and selling books, but yeah, I make much. like I, I make like two bucks a book. So awesome. this is this is not about pimping out books, right? <laughs> yes. Um, it's the only way I know how to get this information out into people's hands. I love it. So in the book, at the back, I've included a ten-question survey. Uh, you can take that survey. You can get your customers to fill it out, uh, and there's a ranking form in there. So you take their answers. It tells you how to score it. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there's ten chapters. Each one is about one of those ten, top ten archetypes. And the results of that little survey will tell you which of those top ten archetypes your customers are most like, right. and it'll tell you which one they're least like. So at least you can start thinking about the world based on value graphics, based on the top ten archetypes that we found in the bubble bath. Right. Now, I, I refer to it as playing the piano with your fists. Like, it's not really elegant, right? I mean, you're, you're, yeah, you're playing the piano. You're, you're banging noise. away. You're making noise. At least you're playing the freaking piano. Yes. You're not over there, like, you know, uh, picking up a guitar, right. uh, which is what we've been doing for far too long. We've been playing those horrible guitars. Right. We should be playing the piano for free for Ish. 12 bucks or whatever. Yeah. You can get this survey that's in the book, and you can start to use values as a way to understand who you're doing things for right. those chapters in the book tell you so much of the data about each one of those value graphic archetypes you'll know what their values are you know what their basic characteristics are all about you'll know what we have quotes in there from some members of those uh, those those cohorts. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, it'd say exactly like here's how I think about the world so you'll suddenly understand those folks that you see in your store and here's the other thing to think about just because what you're observing is a bunch of 22 year old women who are coming into your coffee shop they're finding you for some reason or another. It happens to be on their way to work. Your, 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 your place is located next to a, a place that tends to employ a bunch of 22 year old women, whatever the answer is. So you think about that like a loaf of bread, right? And so you got this loaf of bread and you've been slicing it up based on demographics and you're saying to yourself, it's female, it's 22, they're probably earning this much money, they're driving these kinds of cars. This is what we think it's about. If you can find what that common characteristic is that threads all of them together that isn't about demographics, you may find that that loaf of bread actually is a baguette. 
and that it extends way beyond that 22-year-old female demographic. And by just starting to talk to those values, suddenly there's going to be a bunch of 28-year-old guys coming in at a different time of day, and some 72-year-old couples will show up because you're talking to a value set that crosses all of these demographic boundaries yeah. instead of just relying on a demographic description based on just purely observational science. You know what? You That's actually a learning concept, uh, linear thinking, right? Where you take something you've learned. This is why um, uh, athletes should play many different sports. You can take soccer concepts and apply them to basketball, yeah. right? It's the same thing where it's like you, you need to take – it's horizontal learning. You need to take – a lesson you learned in this one slice and just think about it a different way and how could you apply it to these eight different verticals of your life or in this case of your business right which then you know turns into maybe you know an 8x you know ROI essentially on your marketing efforts like that's such a ridiculous proposition hey business owner you know I know that you're spending you know $100,000 a year on marketing you know what if you could get back you know Right now, you're getting maybe maybe it's a hundred for a hundred. Maybe you're getting a hundred dollars back on your ROI. What if you get eight hundred thousand dollars back on a hundred thousand yeah. dollars? So where that number comes from is uh, we do say that uh, changing over to a value graphic way of thinking about the world and thinking about your target audience can do can be an eight x multiplier to the effectiveness of every dollar an hour you spend. The reason is uh, if you look at as an example, millennials, sure. uh, who, according to our data, um, are aligned on all those 380 different metrics 15% yeah. of the time. Yes. Table stakes for being a human, we all agree with each other 8% of the time. So millennials actually agree with each other more than they agree with other any other human on the planet, 7% more. Nice. So you can't target millennials. Uh, there's only a 7% return on your dollar or your hour. Yeah. If you target people based on the value graphics that we know about them from this data set, you can get up to 70, 80, 90%. So I've just, I mean, I could have said 10 times, nine times, whatever. Sure. I just sort of was being kind and just said, you know, it's about eight, it's at least eight times better yeah. to be using this information than that information. Yeah. Now, here's what we know for a fact. We know for a fact that the data in this data set is wrong 3.5% plus or minus. Mm -hmm. that's, that's a statistical mathematical fact. But let's just for the sake of argument say that I'm 50% wrong. Yeah. And that I can only make your dollar or your hour four times more productive. That's still pretty good. Mm -hmm. And if I'm 75% wrong for some weird aberrant reason, and I can only double the effectiveness of every dollar or hour that you spend trying to target an audience and getting them to be influenced by what it is you'd like them to do, mm -hmm. That's still pretty darn good. It's but I bad. know for a fact it's only 3.5% wrong. Right. So an 8x multiplier, oh gosh, maybe, maybe, maybe my math is all out to lunch and it's a 7x multiplier. Sure. Uh, you're, you're still going to see some kind of massive gain in terms of how effective those dollars and hours are if you just start thinking about the world in a slightly different way. Same audience. Just think about them based on what they care about instead of who they are from outward appearances, what mm -hmm. their demographic profiles are. Think about their values instead. Okay, I'm on board with everything you're saying here. And in, rather than blow smoke, I'd rather ask another question in terms of like, based on how we are marketing to people. People go to school, they learn this stuff. They really do. You know, they you know, go to business school and they learn marketing. How is Marketing 101 being taught today? How would you teach it? Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, you know, I haven't started being noisy enough in the academic world about this yet, but at some point it's bound to happen. Yeah. Uh, 
every marketing 101 textbook starts with saying, well, first job you have to do when you're marketing something is to figure out what your target audience is yeah. all about. Who's your ICA? And we start with demographic descriptions. We need to burn all those books, man. We need to get rid of them. We need to stop telling everybody that these archaic stereotypes from hundreds of years ago are somehow still relevant in a world where we get to curate our own lives, do whatever we want at any point we want, where there's no social pressure, no social norms, or very few anyway, left no. um, around how you have to behave and at what point in your life you have to do anything. And yet we're still using these systems to try and understand each other that are based on these archaic ideas. And we're teaching them in our universities yes. all over the world. Yes. People are paying to be taught this. Yes. And it's so flawed. You radical, you get me fired up just sitting here. <laughs> <laughs> Change the world, goddammit. Damn it. Uh, it's 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 nonsensical, but it's very threatening to a whole lot of people. I mean, I'll tell you one group of people who are not happy about any of this, um, and I get flamed on social media for this all the time. Uh, there's a whole lot of people who are making their livings right now being millennial consultants who go to corporations and charge them a lot of money to say, I'm gonna teach you and your HR team how you can attract millennials to your company or how you can change the culture internally at your company so millennials are happier and you reduce your churn rate and keep your employees yeah. longer. Yeah. Uh, there's people writing books about what the care and feeding of millennials and about how millennials are just like, a, I call them a unicorn in the enchanted forest. We've never seen oh, well, anything well, like a millennial. Thank you. Oh yeah. my gosh. I go to conferences sometimes as a speaker. I do a lot of speaking. Yes. And every other speaker who gets up on stage will be talking about some aspect of how millennials are special and yeah. different and need to be treated in a certain way. Yeah. It's all bullshit. Yeah. I want to stand up and just heckle them from the front row, but I'm just, I'm not that guy. At least I'm not fired up enough to do it yet. <laughs> then I get up on stage and go, guess what? Millennials don't really exist. Uh, and I tell you what happens after I'm done I get all kinds of new people following me on social media I oh, get yeah. all kinds of attaboys I get people coming up to me as I come off stage and going that makes so much sense holy shit yeah <laughs> uh, but the entire millennial advisory community out there is not happy not there's good. other people who are doing it in other sectors too there's other people who are running around saying I'm going to tell you how to um, set things up so that it's better for boomers I'm going to tell you how there's to set realtors. things up so there's... it's better for yeah exactly yeah it has nothing to do with any of those things. Right. The only way we should be thinking about changing companies, changing our lives, changing our policies, our laws, our procedures, our, our products, our services, our brands, our ideas, is based on what we care about. Yes. And based on the groups of people that we're trying to service, that we're trying to be of service to, that we're trying to help, that we're trying to um, sell stuff to, based on what they care about. That's how the world needs to go forward. It's amazing, and this is why I care. This is why I'm here in this conversation, is like, you found a way to bring people together, essentially, into this beautiful conglomerate of people that care about the same things. You've changed the way we've marketed, and you've made more money. Like, we are in an unprecedented time where you can do things in the business world that make sense ethically, that also are extremely profitable. Well, and you need both of them in this case because the business plan that we, we touched on earlier when we started this first, we first started this conversation was, 
I want this to make companies money yes. because then they're going to want to do this. Yes. And if, if, if half the companies in the world started using some form of a values-based system to understand their audience, mine or someone else's, mm -hmm. but just start thinking about the world based on what we care about, yeah. the world's going to get to be a better place. Absolutely. I'm going to make a few bucks. Yes. I'm going to use that money to give this data away. Yes. We're going to use it to be able to help UNICEF and the World Health Organization and Doctors Without Borders and the World Food Bank and all these great organizations who also are trying to just change the way audiences of people think about the world and the way they behave. Right. If I can offer them an 8x multiplier for free because some companies are making more money by using the same 8x multiplier, yes. then it's a great little self-perpetuating machine, yeah, right? It's amazing. Uh, so everybody wins here. There's, not, there's, no, there's no down. There's no downside. And I, and I love that we've had you here before your kind of like landslide moment because here's the thing, like you have... Tell you what, let's talk about straws. Straws are an interesting thing, right? Vancouver's banned straws. You mm. know, uh, uh, San Francisco has as well. And and the thing about straws is we haven't actually come up with a, a viable alternative. So the market hasn't reacted in a way. And I'm in an I'm in an industry where I care about single-use plastics now. So we have not had a mass global shift away from straws of all things straws like why was it straws like why yeah was not q-tips yeah, or like so you know i don't know pla plastic Bottle, big lighters or yeah, whatever yeah. sorry yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like what yeah. anyways um why we haven't had a, a global mass shift is because we don't have an alternative that's just as good if not better and cheaper right so now in, now how does that relate back to you so you have i don't know what your consulting fee is but i bet it's billions not, i bet it's not you know, that difference between 11% and 81%. No. Right? It's not even close to no, that. No, so no. you have a price arbitrage where it's a Pareto improvement. It's a win-win on the table. Yeah. So at some point, the market will become savvy to that and you'll have a landslide. And we haven't actually had that moment in straws. And that's why I bring it up. Like, yes, we have identified an issue, but we haven't actually found that Pareto improvement, that win-win where we can say, hey, here's something different. So if we go to China and we go to all the bubble tea spots and we say, hey, listen, I know you use plastic straws. Here's a biodegradable cardboard straw. It's just as strong. Yeah. It will last just as long. Yeah. And it's cheaper. Yeah. China will change in a day. Yeah. China will change in a day. So you're in a position with how you're, and there's a lot of parallels You got it, there. man. You got it. I talk about Singularity University as a model. Oh, what is that? Singularity University is this group of guys uh, started by, I can't remember anybody's name, but there's a, 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 a wealthy dude who put up a prize uh, to say, if you can get a, uh, it's a SpaceX prize. Oh. So it was 5 million bucks or 10 million bucks, whatever it is. If you can get a, a spaceship to go out into orbit and land back again and do it for less than X number of dollars, I'll give you this money. Uh, and it worked. So he's like, huh, that's interesting. I got a bunch of people who, entrepreneurs who tried to figure out how to do this better than NASA was doing it yes. for less money than NASA was doing it. Better than NASA. <laughs> and, and it worked. They've, some people got really, really motivated by yeah. this. So the basic principle of Singularity University, as I understand it, is uh, that they put up cash prizes. There's a group of them now. They put up cash prizes to solve global problems. So mm. for example, one of them is smokestacks, pollution, pouring out of smokestacks. Who can come up with something that you put in a smokestack that creates a product that's saleable out of the stuff that was coming out of that smokestack before? Carbon, what's it called? Oh, there's a name. So this has just happened. Yeah. Uh, it, was a, it was a Singularity University prize yeah. that got put up to get people to start thinking about what can we do here yeah. so that they could just go to China, to other third world countries, to other places that are emerging, factory-based companies, industrialized, uh, pre 
countries that are still spewing a lot of stuff out of their smokestacks sure. and say to them, <laughs> here's these things, just take it, Here, yeah. have one, put yeah. it in your smokestack and you'll make more money. Yeah. Everybody's going to do that. Yeah. If you just go bang in their door and go, you should stop that because it's bad for the environment. Like, I'm feeding my family, man. Yeah. I got a hundred people who work here. I'm feeding all their families. Yeah. I'm not stopping this. Yeah. You go to them and say, here's a way to make more money. Yeah. It stops. Yeah. And by the way, as a byproduct of that, you're going to help save the world. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. And you're going to have a, a huge shift um, on a macroeconomic level. And that's why I'm excited about this whole thing. Um, but let's go back a little bit here because I'm trying to figure out why you have chosen this path in terms of you know consulting and speaking and, and writing books like you're an intelligent man and I, and I don't think that you have arrived at this spot in your life by accident um, I bet there's a company you could be working for right now that would pay you a lot more than what you're making just to work internally for them or to be their one resource for value graphics or something of that nature you've kind of chosen this like outlier nomad um, approach why is that uh, I guess there's a couple of reasons. On a very personal level, I'm a lousy employee. Ah. Uh, I don't think I could work for anybody ever again. I've been self-employed for far, far, far too long. Uh, anybody who hired me, I would not trust them. <laughs> I would not, <laughs> like, you're not very smart. Uh, <coughs> but the real reason, I think, is, um, again, we talked about this earlier. This has been sort of this organic development. There was a moment, I don't remember if I told you this story or not, but I'm going to tell it to you again, if I have Please indeed do. told it to you already. Um, there was a moment where I was with a journalist in New York, important journalist, writing for a big, important publication. Uh, I had just flown in from Dubai. I had been there doing some things. I was a little bit jet lagged, so my mood was off just a bit. My emotions were at the surface, a little overtired. Yeah. I had one drink. You don't know me very well, but I can hold my liquor. All right. So I had one drink. Yeah. I hadn't even finished it yet. I'm still holding in my hand. This guy was asking me questions like this. Sure. Why are you doing this? Why? Yeah. Okay, I get it. You're going to make some money. You're going to help companies make some money. You've written a book. You're doing some speaking. You enjoy all this stuff. But why? Yeah. And he, there was something about that day, that moment, the way he was asking questions. It all kind of snapped into place. Oh, shit. And I said to myself, oh, my God. I'm doing this because I can make an impact on the world. And I started to bawl like a baby No. in front of this journalist. I literally had to say, here, hold my drink. I was, I was wiping away the tears and going, I'm doing this because the world needs to have this information. Wow. I'm, it suddenly went from being a job to being a, a calling. Yeah. Uh, and ever since then, I get up in the morning and I know that regardless of how good or bad a day I have, I don't have a choice anymore. This has to get done. This shit needs to be out there. People need to have access to this information because it can fix some things. It can make companies run better. It can change problems that we're having all over the world. And if you had to pick one adjective to describe what's going on in our planet right now, mine would be divisiveness. This is the antidote. This is the thing that can make us all realize that values bring us together. This is the way we can all become better people living on a better earth and doing better by each other. And if I don't make this available, if I don't get this out there into the world in a way that it can start to make those things happen, then I'm Dr. Evil. Mm. I may as well just stop right now. Mm. This has to happen, man. It has to. Mm. So we live in a, a political environment where people and politicians have made a living and a presidential runoff of uh, polarity. 
divisiveness. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's a, an, an indicator. Polarity, the level of polarity that we have in a, in a society is an indicator of many things. And it, it doesn't, you know, the, 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 the ending of that story isn't great. Um, and we've seen that play out before, you know, in the 30s. Um, and I'm not saying that's where it's going to go. Um, but I'm saying we've we've heard this story before. If you, it's 2019. Um, when this is released, it will still be 2019. <laughs> um, you know, if you were to advise uh, a presidential candidate, any side of the spectrum, how would you, I don't know if you have an example for this or, or you'd like to speak on this, but how would you advise them and how would you change that political campaign to get them to think about this differently based on your data and how you're approaching marketing now? Well, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer that question, but first I'm going to just, you just made me think of something I want to throw in here. Yes. You know, love them, hate them, whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm going to stay agnostic. Sure. My, my politics are pretty obvious to everybody who knows me, but uh, <laughs> uh, Donald won the presidential election yes. because he triggered values. Yeah. If you need any proof that this stuff is powerful, there it is. Donald Trump. So let's go from there and answer your question. Uh, we actually did a little bit of work around the, the upcoming presidential election in 2020. Um, our polling, our data agrees with most of the major pollsters out there who are saying that uh, Gallup, for example, saying that the um, key issues that people are going to vote around are healthcare, economy, and the immigration. And immigration. Right. Those are the three big ones. So ours at the surface says the same thing. However, what we do that they don't is we have this massive data set that helps us understand what people's values are. So what I say to a pollster uh, and what I'm actually gonna do when I'm behind the voting curtain and I'm in private and I can make my own decisions and right. nobody's gonna know, my behavior is not necessarily gonna be what I've said it's going to be, sure. right? Sure. So looking at people's values, what we can predict based on our data set is two things that nobody is expecting. Mm -hmm. The first thing is that there's a whole lot of people who very, very rarely vote. Uh, what they have in common is a concern for their family, uh, and they have, um, we call it, uh, they're just worried about meeting basic needs. These are two of the values that we know for a fact are common amongst people who very, very rarely vote. So you just think about that person for a moment. They're probably holding down three jobs, just trying to get food on the table to get the kids out the door to school, make sure everybody's got clean clothes on. That's a big, successful day. Yeah. They don't have time to be thinking about who's the president and am I going to vote and how's this all going to impact me. Yeah. This time, they're coming to vote. They're coming to vote around the economy because they believe that the economy is in a state where it's threatening their family. That's the value that they're worried about. So they're going to come and vote. Nobody expects them to come because they never do. Uh, and I can't tell you whether they're going to vote right or left, but they're going to vote for whoever they believe is going to do whatever it needs to be done to the economy so that their family is not threatened anymore. Mm -hmm. There's a whole voting block that no one's talking to because they never vote. Why would we talk to those guys? Right. That's the first thing we found out. Second thing we found out is people who vote all the time who have voted ever since they've been of legal age, the regular, regular voters, they have a slightly different set of um, issues that they're going to vote on based on what we know about their actual values, not just what they're telling the pollsters. They don't believe it's healthcare, immigration, and the economy. They have healthcare fatigue. They've seen one person after another, going back to Hillary and before, trying to fix healthcare coming up with a new healthcare regime. This way, that way, Obama tried it, Hillary tried it, everybody's tried it, Trump's tried it. It's never been fixed. So they're tired of it. They're like, you know what? That's just not fixable right now. So they're switching. They're gonna not be healthcare, economy, and immigration. They're gonna be climate change, Ooh. 
immigration Ooh. and the economy. Ooh. So there's a whole whack of people who vote all the time who are suddenly going to come and one of their top three issues is climate change. Now there's some candidates out there who are talking about climate change, but I don't realize, I don't think they realize how important that voting block is. These are the guaranteed voters. Yeah. And they've said, healthcare, it's not in my top three anymore. It's all about the climate. Again, I can't tell you where they're going to vote. They may be climate change deniers as easily as they are sure. climate change activists. Sure. But they care about climate they change. They care about climate change. So we're going to see climate change voting block that no one's expecting, and we're going to see an economy voting block that no one's expecting. Neither side seems to be paying attention to those two groups in this particular way around those particular values. If I was advising somebody, I'd say start paying attention to those two groups and you're going to have people voting for you that nobody else is even aware is going to be out there voting right now. Where did those numbers come from? What? They existed? Yeah, exactly. I just kind of have like these moments sometimes. I have them in this chair pretty frequently and I've had them talking to you a couple of times. You just kind of sit back and you're like, wow. Oh, shit. Wait, no, this is good. Oh, no, 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 this is bad. This is really bad. This is really bad. We're doing this wrong. We're doing this wrong. Oh, no, no, but there's hope. There's hope. The world can change. We're, we can be on the right path. And I'm like, I have this internal conflict constantly, like just even in that last three minutes there where I'm like, oh, this is good. No, this is terrible. Oh, what is Dave saying? There's nobody's talking about. It. Oh, my God, this is perfect. He's on the right track. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love it. Within all of this, you're, this is why I like it because I think, and the title of your book is great, we are now in an economy. We are in the zero marginal cost economy. We are in a, in a place where anybody can do anything based on uh, barriers to entry. You know, and that's you know that's not entirely true, but that's it's getting really really close. It's more true than it's ever been. Yep. You know, it's more true than it's ever been. Now, what would hold us back? Well, you know, certain people can't do certain things uh, because here's the part that's really tricky. Um, they don't want to do certain things because they've been told they can't do this or whatever. That's where the demographics come in, et cetera, et cetera. Now, if I market different, if I market in a different manner with these values rather than with these target demos, I'm opening up a 22-year-old female woman to do anything that she's ever wanted, regardless of what demographic she fits in. So you're actually breaking down glass ceilings around groups of people. Now, what that does, in my opinion, is that unleashes creativity because now there's rather than three options or two options, there's now 98 options that this person could do because as marketers, because whether you like it or not, we marketers find a way to tap into value systems, find a way to tap into the brain and tell you what you should do or what you should think or how you should dress. Yep. If we change the way we're doing that, we are then opening the mind. We know this, we know this scientifically. For instance, if you walk to work a certain way every day and you decide, you decide to take a left where you usually take a right yeah. and you see different scenery, scientifically, you're, you are opening new uh, opportunities for neural pathways. Yeah. So you're unlocking creativity by marketing to someone differently. Yeah. That's fucking groundbreaking. Yeah. That could change the world. Like I'm not, I'm not saying what you're saying is wrong. I'm, I'm on board in terms of like, hey, if we tell these people, you know, whether it's uh, uh, refugees or whatever it is, I'm on board with all that. Tap into the value system to have a different conversation. That's cool, and I, and I don't disagree. But I think what is maybe bigger 
is the fact that if you have these huge corporations throw trillions of dollars towards marketing and break down the way they've been doing it, you're going to have all types of people doing all types of different things. And you want to talk about diversity in 2019, one of the hot, hottest topics out there? Yep. That's how you do it. Well, I, I believe you're right. I believe that there's a, a, a contribution that thinking about the world from a values-based perspective can make to that whole scenario. But it can't you have to you have to put that into some context. I think that we can just say that technology has brought us to this point, where technology is the great leveling influence. Right. It's because of technology that we all get to kind of curate our lives and figure out what we want to be and who we want to be and how we want to live our lives. That's the thing that's made information so accessible, that's made um, uh, the ability to be the media so accessible. What we're doing right now, 10 years ago, making a podcast yeah. and sending it out there and a whole bunch of people listening to us, 10 years ago would have been unthinkable, maybe right. 15 years ago. Yeah. There were only a few people who got to do this. Had that privilege. Had the privilege of telling the rest of us what they should be paying attention to. Yes. Now we can all be a radio station. We can all be a television station. We can all be a newspaper. The media has become democratized, much to the chagrin of most of the media, <laughs> yes. right? Yes. Uh, there's still a place for the media. I love the media. I think journalists are amazing. Uh, uh, mission-driven people, but the model of only a certain number of folks getting to tell the rest of the world what's important and what isn't has been broken. Right. Uh, so they need to reinvent that. They're working on that. They're going to figure it out. Uh, <laughs> they, they, they have to. They this have is a to. huge thing. They yeah. have to, because otherwise we end up with this um, uh, inevitable future where the only thing you are ever going to be exposed to is stuff that you're already interested in. Uh, and so you just become stupider and stupider uh, and less and less interested in anything other than what you're already interested in. A lot in. of people that would profit off of that. Sure. However, how does the world move forward if you don't learn about new stuff? You might not know right now that you're absolutely fascinated by birds, mm. that you actually have this thing about orthonology. Uh, and that you end up being the guy who discovers some rare species of bird or helps with a bird breeding program. You don't know anything about birds right now. You don't even know that you're interested in birds. And then one day, you're watching TV, and there's a show, and it's about birds, and you go, wow, those things are fascinating. And then, so, then you read a book, and then you find an article about it, and then you go and you take a course about it. And before you know it, you're the world's leading expert in sparrow mating or whatever <laughs> whatever it happens to be yeah. that's how things change yes. if all you ever hear about for the rest of your life is the stuff that you have chosen to be interested in now yeah. uh, how which do you, is ridiculous how do you become anything other than who you are right now right so so technology the media has to fix itself technology however to get back to my point technology ha is has been this leveler that's made it possible for all of us to without shame without social pressure figure out how we want to live our lives one of the things i talk about in the book is back before we had the ability to understand that everybody in the world has different ways of thinking about things and that's all fine there was a certain time and a certain place where if you were a young woman in a small village in the 16th century and you hadn't married and had children by a certain point in your life, there was a problem with you. There was an issue. You were socially shamed. Um, it was, you, you had to, whether you wanted to or not, this was your lot in life. You were female, it, you're 16, where's yeah. your babies? Yeah. Uh, likely, uh, similarly, if you were a man and you were 16 and you weren't a warrior yet and hadn't killed a bunch of enemies, what's your problem? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, we don't have to worry about that stuff anymore. Right. We can do whatever we want. Demographics used to be about survival. 
it used to be about the survival of the species. You had to do certain things by certain points in your life if you had a certain role in society. Rich people had to do certain things, poor people had to do certain things, young people had to do certain things, old people had to do certain things, or else you didn't survive. Right. You didn't make it through the winter. Well, we don't have to worry about that anymore. Yeah. So we can stop thinking about those things. We can stop thinking about the world in those ways. And it's because of technology that we don't have to worry about that stuff anymore. Technology's been the big changing influence. I'm gonna keep rambling here. Here's a good story. Please do. The Industrial Revolution. Let's talk about the Industrial Revolution. Oh, one of my favorite topics of all time. I, people might think I'm joking, but I'm not. Pre-Industrial Revolution, the set word- the, Set the scene. <laughs> Pre-Industrial Revolution, the word family right. meant a very different thing than it did post-Industrial Revolution. Pre-Industrial Revolution, your family was anybody who you cared about, who you supported and supported you. So it was your mom, it was dad, the kids, aunts, uncles, nieces, nephews, but it was also the other folks in your village. Everybody who else who had to survive was part of your family in order for you to survive. Are we talking like pre, like are we talking pre steam locomotive? Are we yeah. talking pre, okay, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. back in the day, right? Sure. Back. back in the day, Damn, way Dave, back in the day. Dave, you got some yeah. years under you. Yeah. <laughs> and then along comes the industrial revolution and the industrialists of the day found it very inconvenient for us to have such a broad idea of what family was because they wanted to be able to move units of labor around. Right. They wanted to be able to take the family from the, the worker from this little village and move them over to this little, little village where the new coal mine was starting or have these people restationed to this part of the train track because they were needed to be. And if your idea of your family was 47 people, you couldn't move those units Can't of labor around. 47 the industrialists convinced us that family is mom, dad, and the kids so that they could move us around easier and ever since then we've believed it so technology changed us that same industrial revolution gave us the concept of vacation of paid vacation it gave us the concept of the weekend it gave us the concept of an eight-hour workday none of that existed before the industrial revolution so there were some bad things that came out of it there were some really good things that came out of it but it was the technologies that keep coming along and changing the way we think about the world we now have technologies that allow us this this data set if nothing else is a technology that allows us to move on to another place where we don't have to continue using old-fashioned structures to understand the people around us we can use new ideas that are based on data to understand the people around us and make the world a better place I'm fucking excited right now because I have never had a chance to have this conversation on this podcast, which is really interesting. And I don't know why, because I'm super passionate about the whole thing. When you, when you bring up like industrial revolution, I, I actually get giddy. Like it's fun. It's really cool because it's how society has changed drastically. So there's a guy by the name of Jeremy Rifkin who, um, do you know who Jeremy Rifkin is? I know Jeremy Rifkin. Right. So I know him. I know of him. Okay. Yeah. So Me I, and Jeremy, we're good buds. Yeah. Yeah. Jeremy Rifkin is a professor at, he's a consultant as well. He's also a professor at, Harvard, Harvard, yeah, one of the big ones. Yeah, one of the big ones. Yeah, um, and he has this concept around. So we've come to like similar conclusions, but from like very, very different places, which is fucking awesome. So three industrial revolutions, right? Um, we've had uh, the steam locomotive uh, and the printing press or whatever, and then we had big Texas, oil, big Texas oil uh, and the Model T Ford, and now we're having this third. For instance, like we have five G and four G communication, uh, and we have renewable energy. Um, and we now have large scale electric cars. So Jeremy says, <sighs> Jeremy, 
You ever feel like when you talk about someone and if you don't use I call their, him JJ. JJ. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like if you don't use their full name, you're like, you know, Being, sh- shitting yeah. on them yeah, or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. Like all yeah. due respect, the man's a genius. Absolutely. Yeah. Um advises like the German government and, and yeah. the EU, anyways, uh, economist. And he's saying whenever there's macroeconomic shifts and he looks at this from a perspective of climate change, how do we change uh the the uh our economy to save our planet. And he says that there have been these three major economic shifts. Every time there's been a major economic shift, there's been a, um, a conversion of uh, technology around transportation, uh, technology around energy, and uh, uh, transportation, energy, transportation, energy. Information. Information, absolutely. And so now we're at this spot with uh, the marginal cost of energy coming down so ridiculously. The Internet of Things, meaning every little piece of your car or uh, the stoplight or whatever it may be, even a supply chain, oh, the latte fill is out. Every little piece has a sensor on it. It's talking to every other piece, right? So, and then this 5G network. So now we have this like communication, transportation, energy collusion of technology that's all advancing that drastically changes our world again. I think that this value graphics, and again, part of the reason why I'm like, yeah, let's have Dave on, is this value graphics information is a part of that technology revolution. But it's just not a part that people are really paying attention to. And to be honest with you, people really aren't paying that much attention anyways to a lot of part of this. When I say Internet of Things to the average person, they're like, I have no clue what you're talking about. I've heard the phrase. I don't know what it means. Right. It sounds like a gimmick, right? There's there's sensors on everything talking to other sensors that make processes more efficient. Sure. It's the exact same thing. It's data points. And you're using data points more effectively in a way that you never used them before. Well, and Jeremy talks about this, too, in the the film that Vice Media made that uh, as a – that. Vice Media did a thing on Jeremy? Vice Media did a... Uh, there's a documentary on Jeremy Rifkin that Vice Media did. You oh, should watch it. It's sick. amazing. I'm going to watch that tonight. Uh, makes the point that um, the information that we all should have available to us is inconvenient for the industrialists of the age. Uh, and Conspiracy uh, theorist Dave coming out here. Well, no. He's just like, why would they want you to know this stuff? Right. Why would they want you to understand the state of the environment? Why would they want you to? Because the state of the environment would... Okay, one of the things he talks about in this documentary is how... Here we go. We just got into it. Yeah, we the just got into just it. The mood just changed. Uh, he talks about um, how for the last X number of years, X number of decades the entire economy has been based on burning fossil fuels. So at some point in the future, it's funny to think that 500 years from now, if we manage to survive that long, people are going to look back at this age and say, those were the people who burned the dinosaurs. That's what we have done. That's how we have made this giant leap forward is we burned all the dinosaurs. Yeah, all the fossil fuel. So in order to make these giant leaps forward. We've built infrastructures, roadways, um, communication systems, vehicles, trains, planes, automobiles, the way we move goods and services around, everything, the entire infrastructure of our planet to get us to this point in time has been based on burning the dinosaurs. We're going to run out of dinosaurs. Now, do we want to be the people who manage to figure out how to get past this and into something else? Or do we want to be the people who, this, the, who you know, this is it, we're done. We burned, we burned all the dinosaurs and now the world's over. Uh, I want to be the people who manage to get past this. But the people who need to understand this are the folks who can make the change. It's you guys. I know we're all the same age now, but it's the millennials and it's your kids who are going to have to make these things happen. Because if you don't, we've only got a generation or two left and all of this infrastructure, this 
dinosaur burning world that we've built, it's going to fall apart. Yeah. Uh, we got two generations. Jeremy says this in his, in his, in his documentary. We've got two generations left. And if you haven't figured this out, we're all toast. Yeah. It's on your shoulders, man. Yeah. You're the ones who have to sort this out. Thanks, Dave. Yeah. Appreciate it. Yeah. And that's ultimately my North Star. I mean, pe people, leadership, and it causes passion, you know, emotional intelligence, and ultimately saving the planet. Like, I know it sounds like a superhero movie, but it's not. It's real life. Yeah. And it's not as glamorous as a superhero movie. And Marvel's not going to produce it. But you know what? It, it doesn't make it any less real. It doesn't, I mean, we are literally in what it was the fifth mass extinction of, of uh, this earth. And so it's something that we have to take extremely seriously. But again, it's, there's cognitive bias and there's, there's confirmation bias. There's so much um, that's happening within our own minds that we can't even see what's directly in front of us. It's a huge problem, right? And why is that so? Well, marketing agencies have a lot to do with it, man. They, have all, they maybe have the biggest part to play in my opinion, because they change the way we think. Regardless yeah. of, I know everyone wants to say, I'm an individual, my thoughts are my own. Well, here's the thing, a lot of your thoughts are not your own, and it's on purpose that you're thinking this way. Yeah, no, I agree. It's and I, it's, a, it's one of the things I hope that, uh, you know, we, we spend a lot of time in the marketing world and other parts of the world right now talking about design thinking. Right. Uh, and it's a you know, new way of approaching problem solving. I think values thinking. Uh, has got to be something that we start to embrace just as much as we embrace design thinking. Right. Um, and yes, use my system. There's for 12 bucks, you can get a book and there's a, there's a cheap and dirty way to do it in there. You can pay me and we'll do a really specific scientific data pool for you or just do neither of those and just start thinking about the people around you, not based on silly things like how old they are, whether they're a man or a woman, whether they're rich or poor, right. just start treating everybody based on what they believe is important. Yeah. Start thinking about the world based on other, how other humans uh, interact with other humans based on their shared values. Yeah. It's not a big ask. It's not it's really a big not. ask. It's I'm just asking everybody to stop thinking about old-fashioned, stupid stereotypes that we now have statistical proof make no sense from a business perspective, make no sense from a social science perspective. Why are we continuing to use these things to build the world in front of us? It just makes no sense. So let's just stop it. Let's stop it right now and just decide that we're going to think about what everybody's values are instead and use that as a replacement system whether it's mine or someone else's, it's a replacement system for demographic stereotypes. <sighs> Radical, independent, free thinkers, my friends. Mm -hmm. Very interesting people. I love having them on. I have, I've had, we've had a couple people that have come on and, and been like, at the end of the day, we are flat earthers about uh, subject X, yeah. about technology, about marketing, about whatever it may be. And it's such a beautiful moment, but it, it, it begs a question in my mind where, you know, I have these people that are far more intelligent than me come on and tell me things and tell other people things. And there's a lot of um, overlapping themes in terms of like why information is not hitting people the way that it should, the way other information does, the way pop culture does, right? Th these are very radical things that strike me as extremely interesting. Why isn't the population at mass consuming this? So when we think about uh, tech or we think about time spent or we think about um, the uh, the knowledge economy or how we market to certain people or even around our bodies and, and what the effects of sitting I don't know I'm making shit up essentially mm. like there are we have the research and the data points to be like these things are generally not good 
Yeah. This is not the way of doing things yeah. and we should pivot. Yet on a mass scale, we don't. Yeah. Why is that? Well, you're asking me? I'm asking you, Dave. Uh, my answer has to be that we're not uh, we're not relating it back to how people make their decisions and how people behave. People behave based on what they value. The only way you make a decision here, I have a great little story I use when I'm speaking. I'll tell you this story. Cool. Maybe a good way to wrap up. It's called Three Friends in an Alley at Midnight. Okay. So three friends are out having a drink, sure. and they haven't seen each other for a while. They're probably having a few too many drinks. And that was probably a few too many hours ago. So they've had a few more drinks than that. Mm -hmm. uh, so they leave. They're walking down the street now. It's midnight. It's dark. They're being loud and noisy and punching each other in the shoulder and giving each other a noogie and having a really good time. And they walk around the corner, and suddenly there's a dark alley. Mm -hmm. Friend number one. Primary value for friend number one is adventure. What do you think that friend wants to do? He wants to go down the alley. Yeah. Seems like it'd be a great, this great way what, to end the alley. We're a there? little drunk. I'm with my best buds. Yeah. Let's go down the alley. Second friend, primary uh, value is safety. Wants to go back to the bar. There's lights. There's other people. It feels safer. Let's all get out of here and go back to the bar. Why would we go down that alley? We don't know what's down there. It does not feel safe. Right. Friend number three, primary value is friendship. Right doesn't really care whether we go down the alley, we go back to the bar, as long as we stick together because we're friends. That's right. what matters. Right. Those three people, those are three very, very logical outcomes, uh -huh. three logical decisions on that evening, at that moment, to that set of stimuli. All three of them seem like they could be the right answer. Uh -huh. No one of those people, it doesn't matter whether they're male or female, rich or poor, uh -huh. young or old, uh -huh. they're not checking in with themselves and going, well, gee, I'm an 18 to 24 year old male who so makes 50,000, how, how am I supposed to behave here? Right. All they're doing is saying to themselves, this is, this is what I think we need to do. Yeah. And in this, in this case, subconsciously, their values are dictating what their response is to that situation. Our behavior is entirely dictated by what we care about, what our values are. Yeah. This is a proven scientific fact. And yeah. now we have a data set that we can use to figure out how to harness that and use it to change the world for good. So I have so many questions popping up in my mind. It's ridiculous. Is there, is there another data set like this? As far as we can tell, there isn't. Uh, we've been looking. Right. Um, I'm sure you have, yeah. We, we looked around before we started putting all this money into it, and we also tried to, uh, uh, yeah, we were actively out seeing, trying to see if we could. Now, there's other companies who say, and we've talked about them before, uh, that they can understand an audience in a way that can help you predict what they might do. Sure. Have all kinds of problems sure. and flaws with their methodologies and what it is they're trying to accomplish. Sure. Uh, but as far as we can tell, no, nobody else has done this. Um, what was your question? That was it. That was it. So but, the answer is no. Okay, cool. Yeah. That was all he, that's all he had to say to me, but <laughs> Jesus Christ. God damn. So a couple just to wrap up here. Like, you're in a very, there's different types of intelligence. You're a very emotionally intelligent person. How do you break down, like, how do you break down a person? When we first met, you're like, you know, I can tell within the first few minutes of meeting you, this will be a long conversation, right? How do you knowing all of this these different value sets understanding emotional cues and body language and, and all these things like how do you interact with the world like you must literally does that brain ever turn off how do you move how do you yourself move live your life knowing what you know and, and having the background education experience that you do and I know that's a really wide open question but I'm really curious I don't know that I'm entirely doing it right um, I'm, I'm trying my best Right. Um, I come from a, a world where you hustle. Yeah. Uh, I'm out trying to sell stuff. Right. I've worked in marketing and advertising, selling my ideas. Yeah. I got a really big, crazy idea here. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've got a really cool product. 
and I'm out trying to convince people to use it. Um, the pushback I seem to be getting the most is that I'm hustling too hard. Uh, if there's critical people online, uh, it's that I'm too uh, aggressive around my opinion. And I, then I come back and say, it's not an opinion, it's facts, it's data, it's science, yeah. this, is, this is statistics. If I could change the way I've approached the market in the last few years, I, I think I would do it calmer. Mm. I think I would just be more um, factual. Mm -hmm. I would be less um, um, aggressive uh, right. about the way I try and um, uh, make my points. Mm -hmm. uh, so how am I moving through the world? Probably not the best way I could if I'm trying to achieve the objectives I'm trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm aware of it, mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm doing my best. I'm trying, I'm trying to change that. I'm trying to be more the guy who has a good story to tell instead right. of the guy who's trying to sell you a service. Right. Um, takes a long time to change when you've spent your entire career doing things one way uh, mm -hmm. and then suddenly you have to try and be some other guy. Uh, mm -hmm. I think the other part of your question was maybe more about my personal life. Um, yeah, it, it can't help but impact you. When you start to see how strong and powerful these values are, uh, you do meet people and you start listening to what they're saying and look at their body language and talk to them a little bit and you are able to go oh, I know who you are yeah. uh, <laughs> and it's, it's fun sometimes it's a good party trick uh, <laughs> uh, so you're just you're at a party and you're like you like hard boiled eggs don't you yeah I bet you do yeah, yeah. you're a peanut butter guy yeah <laughs> <laughs> I love peanut butter Dave you just know me so well he's such a people person I love Dave bring him around more often yeah so it does it does open your eyes to to things um you know, I've never been a big believer in uh, demographic discrimination. Right. Uh, my friends have always been all kinds of different ages. Yeah. Um, in the book, I like to talk about the two extremes. I have, I have a friend who's, uh, who's turned 28 this year, I think. Yeah. Uh, and he so is young. my mentor. Uh, he's the one who got me into the public speaking world. Wow. That's wrong. I'm supposed to be the mentor. I'm the 55-year-old, right? Yeah. Uh, and on the other side, a very, very good friend of mine who I enjoy a good scotch and a cigar with, and we both uh, lived in Winnipeg at one point in our lives, and uh, we were both paper boys for the same newspaper, and we were both Boy Scouts, and we both won the same really prestigious Boy Scout badge. Um, I like it. Uh, and we're both into the art world, and we have a great time every time we're together. And his name's Gordon Smith, and Gordon's 99. Uh, and no, actually, this year he turned 100. Gordon's 100 years old. Gordon, wherever you are, if you're listening to this, man, congratulations, a centenarian. I, he is an amazing guy. And we have just the biggest belly laughs talking about <laughs> our common our common values, the yeah. things we share in common. Yeah. I've never thought of him as my old friend. Uh, <laughs> uh, I've never thought of uh, my 28-year-old mentor as my young friend. Yes. They're just my friends. Yes. Um, I don't think th that stuff should be important. I just don't think it should be. Wow. It's like, this is really outlandish, what I'm about to say. Like, it's like in the 1800s when someone was like, I don't care if a person's white or a person's black. I'm just going to like value them for being a person. It's almost like we kind of have the same fucking thing. Like, oh yeah, ageism today, is alive and well, man. It's alive and well. Like that's crazy, and it's maybe the most prominent out of everything. Like, yeah. you know, I, I live in a world of I work in a world of people that are um, boomers. Yeah, and I'm looked at I'm looked at in outlandish ways all the time. Wait, 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 hold on. You're the kid. You're the, 
Why are you talking? You're, is that real facial hair or like what yeah, is yeah, that? Yeah, like, yeah. Did you paint that on or yeah. what the fuck is that? Yeah. You know, and it's like, oh, that's that's realer than ever. And it seems more real or apparent to me at least than than some of these other things do. Granted, take that with a grain of salt, I'm a white male, so I don't know much about those other um, struggles, but it seems very apparent and no one's talking about it. Yeah. Ageism is a uh, insidious um, uh, aspect of our lives right now. Um, nobody acts their age anymore. Yeah. We don't have to act our age anymore. Yeah. I remember when I was younger, knowing people who were over 50 and they were like old. old. I'm over 50 and I don't think I behave like an old guy. Yeah. I don't certainly feel like my life is the life of an old man. Uh, age has kind of become irrelevant largely. I mean, you get to a certain point where you're just, your body craps out and you're not around anymore. Right. But I, there's, there's no reason for people to be, why do we retire at 60? Why do we? What's that number? I don't who know. made that up? Who did make that up? Why don't you retire when you're ready to retire? Dave, who made that number up? I have no idea. You don't know? No idea. I feel like you know. I have no idea. But for some reason, there's a law right. that retirement is age 60. Why are you a senior citizen when you hit 60? Where does that come from? Yeah. Why isn't that 65 or 75 or 85 or 95 or 22? What's a senior citizen? What's that about? It has something to do with when you retire and suddenly you're supposed to be poor and so now you need a discount on BC ferries. There's a, there's a, <laughs> there, there's, but there's just these preconceived notions. You can't possibly sit around a boardroom table with people who are twice your age yes. and be intelligent. Of course not. Because you're 22. Can't two. You can't. No. Uh, no one's going to take what you say as seriously as the guy next to you who's half as smart as you are, right. who's twice your age, yeah. because he's twice your age. Yeah. Why is that right? Yeah. It's The whole thing is so stupid. And the whole respect your elders thing, right? And, and I used to, like, and I, I, I'm not saying I don't believe that, but I'm just saying that, like, I used to be very intimidated. And this is something this podcast has taught me specifically, sitting down with people that are 40, 50, 60. Like, just intimidated, like, you know, yeah, I spent a lot of time learning, but there's no way I can, you know, absorb the amount of knowledge or know the amount of things or have the amount of experiences that you do. Like, it's just, it's not physically possible. So I feel in this, like, disadvantage. I'm like, ah, shit, I'm just going to shut up. You know, because I'm like, I don't want to come off as ignorant or whatever, whatever. And then someone told me, like, listen, you know how many 40-year-olds that you have outlived? You know how many 60-year-olds you've outlived? You've outlearned and you've outexperienced. So that whole arbitrage, because the because we have been marketed to lead lives of silent desperation. Is that the quote? Mm, quiet it? desperation. Quiet desperation. Yeah. Um, and that suffocates experiences. It suffocates knowledge, and it keeps an economy going in a way. That's kind of really getting outlandish there. But so don't feel intimidated by these people because you shouldn't measure, you know, people in terms of their age. You should measure them in terms of their value and, and what they bring to the table. And that could be any age, which is like really fucking empowering especially as a young person. Because yeah. as you said earlier, the generation that needs to avert this crisis, this climate crisis, they need to feel empowered mm. now. There's a guy I met in Berlin uh, about a year and a half ago, two years ago, um, and he's got a fascinating story. His name is Mahir Garamelli. Yeah. Mahir, when he was 12 years old, 
uh, entered the Google Science Fair right. um, with a project based on his observation of fruit flies. Yeah. Uh, he was a kid, and he liked bugs. Uh, and he was watching <laughs> fruit flies, and he was like, they really move in really crazy, crazy ways, and they're able to do amazing things. And wouldn't it be amazing if we had flying robots that could move like fruit flies Dreaming, move? man. So he entered the Google Science Fair, which is a huge international global competition, a project based on why don't we make flying robots that move like fruit flies do at 12, uh, and he won. Yeah. Uh, and next thing you know, he's working with MIT. They've made those flying robots, and those flying robots go into buildings that have collapsed with earthquakes and fires, and they see if there's humans still alive in there so that the dogs and the people can go and get them. Unreal. 12-year-old dude. Yeah. Uh, when I met him, he was 14. Yeah. Uh, so if somebody had said to him, what the hell are you doing, man? You're 12. Like, get out there and play with the ball. Go yeah. chase the stick. Chase yeah. the stick. Stop thinking about fruit Stop flies, thinking kid. about robots and entering science fairs. Like, yeah. we wouldn't be saving those lives anymore. Of course, of course. It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. There's, at the same time, let's, let's, let's point out, there's some old people who are really stupid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and just because they're old doesn't mean they get a break, yeah. right? Either you're smart or you're not. Yeah. Uh, so it doesn't have anything to do with it's how like old you are. 80-year-olds that can't drive, but they do. Yeah. Yeah, it's the same thing. Yeah. A little off topic, and I swear I'll wrap here, but like when you look at uh, these value base and you you try to figure out what people will do and what they will buy, can you, as a marketer, identify pitfalls of people, or not even as a marketer, rather, as a human? Like you haven't gone this route at all, and, and we've kind of, sometimes we get a little bit like self-development-y on here. Like do you, can you take that data set or even that emotional intelligence and go, oh, I see the way you're thinking about the world. Here's how you, you're not thinking about it, or here's the action that you're not taking, and consider this. Mm. Do you ever do that at all? You know, we have to be really careful about this. I don't want to present this data set as being a psychological data set, because it's right. not. It's a sociological data That's set. the way you're thinking about things. Sure it is, but this is sociological data. This is about groups of people and how they think about things. Right. Right. Psychologists can pinpoint the values of an individual with things like an MMPI and a Myers-Briggs test, sure. and they've been able to do this for a long time. Sure. What we've done that's new is we've figured out how to do the same kind of um, data read for large groups of people. Okay. So what I've learned about sociology, taking that and applying it to individuals is kind of dangerous. That's I psychology. Still, there's something inside that is just like, okay, I know for large groups of people this is true. Yeah. I think you're part of that large group of people. So there's some generalizations I can make about who you are right. and how you behave and how you interact with the world. What, yeah. Am I using it as a way to uh, reverse that out and say, why aren't you doing this and why aren't you doing that? No. 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 Okay. Um, but, but you do start to see patterns. Right. You do start to see... You pick up on that. You can pick up on patterns. You can kind of start placing people in groups after you've played with this this uh, this, this data set enough. I see. Okay. I like it. Thanks for shooting me down there. I appreciate yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll, I'll wrap with this and, and say, um, we've kind of painted a broad picture about what your life has been like, your education, the point that you're trying to put across here, where you're trying to move in the world and how you're trying to change it, which is super interesting. On a practical level, like, what's your life about today? Like, what, you know, you came in here, you've had a crazy busy day. Like, what are you actually doing? How does all of what we've talked about actually implement in your day-to-day -day life? Are you really trying to write another book? Are you really trying to, you know, be a consultant? Are you really trying to go speak everywhere? Like, what are you trying to do? What is your actual life? And who are you working with, if you can reveal that at all? And, you know, 
What are you uh, doing? So all of those things are true. All of those things. Uh, <laughs> it is time for another book. Um, you know, the, the book that's out right now talks about the data set being 75,000 uh, uh, surveys. I was pre-truthing when I wrote it. That's my new term. Ooh. Uh, okay, I, I like I, that. <laughs> hey, babe, listen, I got a six-pack and all that. You know, yeah. I know right now, but by the summer, <laughs> on Thursday, I got yeah, you. Yeah, no yeah. problem. I was pre-truthing. Uh, so when I wrote the book, we, we did not have that. But I figured that by the time the book was out, we'd have about that number. So 75,000, I don't even want people to read the book anymore because now we're at 250,000 and in the next couple of months we'll be at half a million. Um, so yeah, it's time for a new book. Uh, we've learned a lot of things we didn't know when we wrote the first book. This so, came out in 2016? Uh, no, no. It came out in uh, last October. Oh, 2018? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so it's not even been a year. Okay. Uh, and it's, wow, I just think about how far we've come in a year. Uh, so yeah, time to think about a new book. Lots of social media work, trying to spread the word and just make sure people understand what this is all about and that sure. it can help them and it can help them and it can help the world, it can help their companies, it can help their careers. Uh, do a lot of public speaking uh, for the same reason. Um, public speaking, it helps you pay the bills, but it also is a great audience full of people who are gonna sit and listen to me for an hour, talk about how they can use values to make their worlds better. That's gonna be impactful. Uh, I have uh, very privileged to work with some really amazing clients and as I get louder and louder and as this gets older and older and people are starting to listen, the clients are getting bigger and bigger and more and more interesting. So I've had you know some really nice global clients lately. Mm -hmm. uh, once the data set's global, 100% uh, global, and we're able to cover the entire world, I think the brands we'll be working with will be even bigger and more interesting. Um, so yeah, all of those things are going on. A day, today is actually a very typical day. So just really? to run through today, uh, 5 a.m. conference call with Dubai, yeah. uh, 7 a.m. breakfast with an architect, uh, 10 o'clock breakfast, or 10 o'clock second breakfast with an uh, 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 agency here in town called Elevator Strategy that I'm starting to do a little bit of work with. They're helping uh, spread the word through uh, industry reports that we're writing together. Okay. Uh, so then I had a, uh, what was after that? Then I had a lunch meeting. Then I had a two o'clock meeting with a potential client in the real estate sector. Uh, and then I got in a taxi and came over here and joined you. Hell yeah. Uh, so we've been up and at it since, uh, since 5 a.m. with Dubai. No problem. I like it. I like uh, like being the dumbest person in that group. It makes me feel very privileged. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take the spot. Thank you very much. Is it an eighth place? Maybe. Fuck it. I get a rhythm, 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 ribbon, ribbon though. Um, so all that being said, where do you want to direct people here? I mean, yeah, we could direct them towards this now, you know, very slightly outdated book. Uh, I think there's a, a couple things they could do. If they just Google value graphics, sure. um, I've been anything but shy. Yeah. So there's all kinds of great stuff online, um, uh, interviews, articles, um, uh, uh, assets that I've created, um, all, all you know, recordings of speeches I've given, all that kind of stuff is there. Valuegraphics.com has got some stuff on it. That's in the process of being updated. Yeah. Um, the book is available on Amazon if you want that. Um, hopefully one day... Demographics, psychographics, and value graphics will just be thought of as a trio of things that we need to use in order to understand audiences better. And nobody will have to go looking for any of this because it'll just be a household word. Uh, That's the ultimate goal. Uh, well, Dave, I, I appreciate you coming on. And, uh, and I hope that we can help you uh, achieve that. And I hope Thanks. that people take this home and, and really think about that. Think about what they care about. That's a great way to finish. Cheers, man. Thank you Cheers. for the time. Thanks. That's right.